So please turn with me to Mark 9:42 through 50. It's where we will behold and consider the wonders of God and his word this morning, Mark 9, 42 through 50. Last week, we, if you recall, we talked about purity, the, the reality of, of purity, of, of unity, the reality of unity that God, through Christ, has, has made true of his church, his people. This week, we will be talking about purity, two great realities that Christ has won for us through his gospel, the the unity of his people, the church, and the purity of his people, the church. So when you think of purity, what Bible verses come to mind? Well, perhaps one that we heard this morning, Matthew 5, 8, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Only those pure in heart will see God. So what then is the motivation for having a pure heart? The reality, the promise, that those who have a pure heart will see and behold the one beautiful God in all his glory and splendor and love. And then we must ask, why must we be pure in order to behold God? Well, it's because, as First John tells us, God is light. He is the essence of purity and holiness. Therefore... Man cannot see his face and live. Man cannot see him and live, as he told Moses, as we've heard Will preach recently. Therefore, those who desire to see God must, as we heard read this morning from 1 John 3, everyone who hopes in Christ purifies himself as as he is pure. Only the pure will see God. This is not a purity that we can attain on our own. This is the blood-bought purity that Jesus has purchased for us at the cross. And we'll see that in our passage this morning. Presently in Mark, we're at the tail end of, of a section, 930 through 50, that has a lot of themes just to kind of catch us up to our, our present context. Really, you could have taken this whole passage and preached it at once, and you say, well, why didn't you just do that? Well, because it's, it's beneficial for us to look at it in, in these chunks here. Now, remember what kind of set the tone for this whole stretch of scripture here. In, in Mark nine thirty through 32, Jesus has just, for the second time, predicted his, his betrayal, suffering, death, and resurrection. The second of three times. We've the so-called passion predictions. Jesus says, this is how the Messiah, me, Christ, will save, his peop- will save God's people. It will be through my suffering and death. And the disciples are struggling to grasp this reality. Well, last week, uh, we saw another astounding reality in, in, uh, in this context, and that was Christian unity. Christian unity is, is a blood-bought reality. Christians are united in Christ across all, all time, across all races, across all backgrounds, socioeconomic status, it doesn't matter. Christians are united in Christ. Strangers now family gathered to worship the triune God. So we're truly united now, as we saw, but we're also presently building upon that unity, living it out with the knowledge that one day, We will be perfectly united. We'll realize our full unity in the new heavens and new earth. So it's a now and not yet reality in this sense. We do this, build upon our unity with a view to the perfect unity that awaits us at Christ's return. 
We also noted that the disciples' sinful pride threatened this present unity. Their sin works against unity. So the survival of unity depends on the absence of sin. Thank God, in the new heavens and new earth, sin will be no more. So here this morning, we're going to note the second astounding gospel reality of Christian purity. Christian purity is a blood-bought reality. It is true. It is real. We are truly pure in Christ right now. And it goes hand in hand with Christian unity. And so we anticipate, just like with Christian unity, a time when sin will exist no more and will be perfectly pure, fully pure in the presence of God's, uh, in the presence of God and his kingdom now forever. And so our passage will speak to that this morning, and it's our aim to see this, and we ask God to help us with this. So look with me at our passage, Mark nine forty-two through 50. Follow along as I read. Whoever causes one of these little ones to sin, one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him if a great millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. And if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life crippled than with two hands to go to hell to the unquenchable fire. And if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life lame than with two feet to be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into hell where their worm does not die and the the fire is not quenched. For everyone will be salted with fire. Salt is good, but if The salt has lost its saltiness. How will you make it salty again? Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. These are the words of Christ, his disciples. So we'll consider this passage in two parts. We'll look at verses 42 through 48, sin. Verses 42 through 48, sin. And then we will look at verses... Uh, 49 through 50, purity in Christ, verses 49 through 50, purity in Christ. And the main idea here, the big idea that we want to walk away with is we are pure in Christ. Christians are pure in Christ, therefore Christians strive to live pure and holy lives in fellowship with one another. So first look with me at verses 42 through 48, this first section, and we'll consider it in two parts. First, we'll see in verse 42, the nature of sin. And then in verses 43 through 48, we will see the fight of every saint. Look with me at verse 42. Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him if a great millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. So what does this passage reveal to us about the nature of sin? Well, we can figure it out by considering what our passage says and how it, relink, how it links directly to uh, what was previous. So here we see that Jesus warns the disciples against causing who to sin? These little ones. And it's not just these little ones. It's these little ones who believe in me. So already we see that sin here is is something that is over against belief in Jesus. Sin is, 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 is marked by falling away from faith in Christ, and this will become clear. Well, who are these little ones that Jesus refers to? 
Well, it's very possible that Jesus is still holding this child in his arms. You remember that? Remember in, in, in Mark uh, 9, uh, 37, Jesus picks up a little child to make a point and says, this is what greatness in the kingdom of God looks like. It looks like welcoming the least of these, right? So very, in a very real sense, Jesus is, is talking about a, this child who trusts in him to come to him and be picked up in his arms, But this child also pointed to a reality, right? This child represented those who had faith in Jesus, his disciples, his followers who would come to him. Those who trust and believe in Jesus through faith. Don't cause one of these little ones to sin who believes in me. Jesus says this much, right? So in this context, who is the most recent example of someone we have seen who is believing and trusting in Jesus through childlike faith. It's the unknown exorcist, right? This unknown exorcist who is casting out demons. Jesus is not just giving a random warning here. In context, Jesus is letting the disciples know just how much, how much they're towing the line here. With, the treat, with this treatment of a fellow follower of Jesus, to whom they are united. Not only were the disciples not right in their treatment of this unknown exorcist by trying to stop him, here Jesus says that they actually run the risk of causing him to fall away from Christ in his faith. They actually run the risk of causing him to stumble. Now, cause to sin here, it does get at this idea. It's one word in the original language, and it gets at the idea of, in Mark of causing one to fall away. From the faith, falling away from Christ. We read that in Mark 4.17, uh, in the parable of the four soils. And if they have no root in themselves but endure for a while, then when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately they fall away. Same word. And Jesus said to them, you will all fall away from me. Talking about his disciples when he is betrayed. This falling away, causing to stumble, causing to sin is over against faith in Jesus Christ. The disciples, by their actions, are actively working against this man's faith in Jesus and risk causing him to fall away. This is why Jesus offers this warning. So there are two sobering takeaways that we can... uh, Uh, notice here with regard to the nature of sin. First, as we've pointed out, the nature of sin, no matter what the kind, is inextricably linked to and tied to unbelief in Jesus. That's what sin is. No matter what it is, it is tied to unbelief in God and his promises, unbelief in Christ. It's over against those things. Secondly, the nature of sin is to proliferate. That is, sin perpetuates sin. Sin has a way of reproducing itself. And we, and we see that here. The disciples are sinning against this unknown exorcist by trying to stop him. And Jesus says that what they're doing could actually cause this unknown exorcist to sin and fall away in the faith. Sin can cause others to sin. You don't have any experience with this, do you? If we're in any kind of relationship with anybody, we know that when someone sins against us, what is the immediate reaction of our flesh? It's to (laughs) come out with sin, right? Sin is perpetuating sin. 
We can all relate to that. So sin then never occurs in a vacuum. Sin offends and rejects the infinite king of the universe. That's what it does. That's what it is. That's part of its nature. And then sin also causes others to reject and fall away from the infinite king of the universe. So when one sins, they commit two high crimes, treason against the most holy God, and then inciting rebellion against the most holy God. This is what sin is doing. Such a heinous crime requires equally just consequences and punishment. And so the nature of sin then also comes with consequences. It is sin's nature to be followed by consequences. And Jesus, in the second half of verse 42, illustrates with a horrible image that by nature sin comes with pretty hard consequences. So let's look at that. For those who, through their sinful unbelief in the person of Jesus, lead others into sinful unbelief, Jesus says it would be better for him if a great millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. So Jesus uses an image to offer an idea of the severity of judgment and the consequence that those who by their sin cause others to sin deserve. Now considering the possibility of drowning has got to be one of the most anxiety-inducing thoughts to entertain. It's probably because you're you're conscious when it happens, but I remember a time when I was little uh, getting stuck in the bottom of a pool uh, just for an instant, got caught between the ladder, the pool ladder, you know, trying to swim through it, got caught between the pool ladder and the wall and was able to wiggle myself free. And what felt like an eternity probably was only really about two seconds, but I just, (laughs) it's burned in my brain that summer at the end of baseball season, going swimming at a friend's house and getting stuck in there and feeling that panic immediately, right? But being able to wiggle out. Here Jesus makes the, the image even, even more anxiety-inducing and horrible by removing the possibility of getting back to the surface. Jesus notes that in this, this case, a great millstone is tied to one's neck. Now, Again, our reaction as humans is like, well, how great is this millstone? I'm a pretty strong swimmer, right? Well, the original language here, it, it actually, a more literal translation is, is a millstone of a donkey. So this is a millstone that requires a donkey to turn, requires donkey power. So this is possibly thousands of pounds we're talking about. You're going straight to the bottom of the sea. We might say, well, this sounds a little extreme. But Jesus actually says that this punishment isn't even severe enough. He says, if you had a choice between the divine judgment that is deserved by causing someone to sin and the millstone tied around your neck and thrown into the sea, pick the millstone every time. Because divine judgment is far worse for sin. And we we might still wonder, why is this so extreme? Why such the extreme example here? Well, perhaps we can kind of use a real-world example to relate to this, and you've probably heard this example before. We know that all, uh, even in the real world, crimes come with punishment, right? Or uh, sins that we would we would call sins come with punishment. Just think of, uh, uh, for instance, a brother, a son, or a brother punching a sibling, right? 
That's going to come with punishment. Parents are going to level punishment for that. It may look different, but it deserves to be punished. Well, take that up a level. What if someone were to do the same thing, we're talking about punching here, but punch someone in authority, say a local official, an officer, or a teacher? Punishment's probably going to look a little bit different, right? Be a little more severe. Well, let's take that to the extreme in an earthly example. What if someone were to punch a world leader, a ambassador, or a president, a prime minister, chances are you're not getting just sent to your room. You're not just going to be thrown in jail. Chances are you might not even be breathing in a couple of seconds, right? Punishment will be swift and severe. What's the only variable that changed here? Who the action was against. That's what determined the severity of the punishment. Sin, no matter What it looks like is a crime against the most holy God of the universe. A a crime of infinite heinousness. Therefore, it deserves infinitely divine, just, horrible judgment. And it's just. So sin at its core and actions, it manifests unbelief in Jesus. It's high treason against the king of the universe and it actively recruits others to rebel by perpetuating sin within them. And so here's the problem. These disciples and we are sinful. The whole reason Jesus is teaching them this is because they just sinned against somebody in this way. What are they to do? What are we to do? Well, Jesus will make clear that when it comes to sin, the saints are in for a fight. Look with me at verses 43 through 49. And if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life crippled than with two hands to go to hell, to the unquenchable fire. And if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life lame than with two feet to be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into hell where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. So here... Jesus offers three different parallel examples of sin, temptation to sin, uh, in this, this section we're calling the fight of every saint. So there are different sins. The sin of the hand, the sin of the foot, the sin of the eye. And we could speculate and, and think about what these sins entail. There's, there's something to be gained here. Indeed, others have noted that, okay, perhaps the sin of the hand, it, it, it's talking about the things you do. The things you do, right? Or the sin of the foot indicating where you go or your walk in general. The sin of the eye, of course, what you see, what you take in, what you let into the window of your soul. There's things to be gained here. But I want to focus more on on the bigger picture. Each of these instances in general represents a different sin. This is a variety of sins. It's, 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 it's all manner of sins. Sins you do with your hands, sins of your feet, sins of your eyes. That's the big point here. These are all different kinds of sin. But there remains one solution for fighting the sin, no matter what it is. All of these sins have consequences, 
But there's one solution. And in this instant here, Jesus describes an action. What is the action? Remove the part of the body that would cause to sin. Now, Jesus is being intentionally hyperbolic here, right? He's not saying actually go cut off your arm or your foot. That's not the point. But that doesn't diminish the point. That doesn't diminish the point. The point is, where there is sin, it needs to be torn away with. It needs to be cut away from the life. But what moves someone to such an extreme measure in this image? To chop off a hand, to chop off a foot, to tear out an eye. What, what is it that motivates somebody to cut sin from their life and be so active about it? Well, as Jesus will say here, the motivation is what God promises. In each example, Jesus holds out what awaits those who seek to fight and eliminate sin from their lives. The reason one would cut off their hand is because of the promise of life. They will enter into life. Interestingly enough, again, the original Language here is not just life, it's actually specific. The life. It is better for you to enter the life. This is a specific life, and we'll see that in a moment. This is the same motivating promise for the one whose foot causes them to sin. Cut it off because you will enter into the life. And finally, the eye. If your eye causes you to sin, why would you tear it out? What motivates this? The promise of entering what? The kingdom of God. So you see what Jesus did there. This is the life he is referring to. Life in the kingdom of God. It's the same promised life that Jesus holds out for those who will deny their life and lose their life for his sake and the gospel's sake. In a few verses earlier. Jesus says, if you will lose your life, renounce your claim on it, the trappings, the idols, the sin, then you will gain true eternal life in the kingdom of God. This is what the promise is here. You cut off the hand that causes you to sin. You cut off the foot that causes you to sin. You tear out the eye that causes you to sin because what awaits you is true life in the kingdom of God. It doesn't matter what the sin is. Whatever particular brand of sin besets you, doesn't matter. There are no special cases. No different remedy. The solution is the same for all. See and believe God and his promises of eternal life with him. This is what motivates the heart. Our desire is what needs to change. So often in our sinfulness, we see the promise of life and the kingdom of God, the beauty of God and all he is, and then we see the temporary pleasures this world has to offer, being able to live for myself now and get what I want now, and we choose the latter every time. Jesus is reorienting focus and perspective here. Think long term. Jesus is actually holding out what amounts to two doors here, 
And you get that picture, the classic picture. If you choose door one, you get this. If you choose door two, you get this. And sin is right in front of you. Jesus says, you can take that sin. But if you take it, know that it will lead to, as we will see, eternal death. Or you can deny that sin, cut it out from your life, and you get door number two, eternal life. So Jesus holds out this promise as motivation to fight sin. The opposite of fighting sin would be embracing it. There's no such thing as true passivity to sin. To be passive to sin is actually to embrace it. So Jesus holds out this promise of eternal life to motivate, and the alternative to purity and life is sin and death. That's the only alternative. Eternal death. Jesus makes this clear. Where does sin lead? If purity, the cutting away of sin, leads to eternal life, sin leads to hell. The word here is actually the word Gehenna. I'm sure we're all familiar, some of us are familiar, but it's a name that refers to the valley, a valley outside of Jerusalem where the Canaanites used to sacrifice their children, human sacrifices. And in Christ's time, it became the dump of Jerusalem that's burning endlessly, smoldering. This is the image that is conveyed here. And, and Jesus, here in verse 48, actually quotes Isaiah 66, 24, what we just heard to describe exactly what happens to those who choose to rebel against God. He says, It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into hell, where, quoting Isaiah 66, where their worm does not die and and the fire is not quenched. So it's tempting for all of us to not want to entertain such, such descriptions, to pass over them. This is, it's not a new phenomenon. Humans, we've always in our flesh tried to sanitize death, tried to sanitize the severity of these things. But Jesus doesn't. He, he won't let us simply pass them over. He gets more descriptive often than we're willing to because it's that important. Listen to what one of the early church fathers, John Chrysostom, said just three or so centuries After the time Jesus walked the earth, uh, it just shows how little we've actually changed as humans. This is no trivial subject, Chrysostom says, the inquiry that we propose, but rather it concerns things most urgent and about which many inquire, namely, whether hellfire has any end. For that it has no end, Christ indeed declared when he said, Their fire shall not be quenched and their worm shall not die. Yes, I know, chill, a chill comes over you upon hearing these things. But what am I to do? For this is God's own command. Ordained as we have been to the ministry of the word, we must cause our hearers discomfort when it is necessary for them to hear. We do, not, we do this not arbitrarily, but under command. Speaking of this very passage, Chrysostom said that. By Jesus' own mouth, the end game of sin is not eternal life. It is eternal death and torment under God's righteous wrath. So again, the weight of the consequence for the sin fits the gravity of the crime. Paul is speaking right in line with Jesus when he says things like in 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 10. Or do you not know? that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God. He's saying this to the church. 
Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. This is, this is not, a, a, uh, uh, it's not a complete list. This is just an example. It doesn't matter the sin that's practiced. If it's practiced, it does not inherit the kingdom of God. Those who continue in sin will not inherit the kingdom of God. There's no caveat. He simply says this to let the gravity of of the warning sink in. Sin and the practice of sin leads to death. Only purity leads to life. Jesus, if we recall, comes out in the very first time in Mark. We see him starting his ministry, and it says, He came proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom of God. Proclaiming. Now, this word proclaiming, it actually is an important word that, that was chosen to describe what is the preaching of the gospel and the proclamation of the gospel. It gives the idea of a herald who comes from a king, a conquering king is coming, and, a, and he sends forth a herald to the city. And the herald comes in, and he proclaims the terms of peace. This is what is happening. The king is coming, and you are either with him or you are against him. This is what it means to be with him. This is what it means to be against him. That's what Jesus is doing here. He's he's saying, these are the terms of peace for the kingdom of God. Purity gains the kingdom of God. Sin gains eternal death. These are the terms of peace. And what's interesting here is usually the king sends a herald, right? Someone else, a subject to go and make this proclamation to a city that the king is coming. He's giving you these terms of peace. Be with him. And this herald proclaims it. Here, the God of the universe sends his own son. The king himself comes to his people to proclaim these terms of peace and to urge people to be with him. We say, how? We've already seen that our problem is that we are impure. How can then we be accepted by this king and his terms of peace if we're not pure? Well, let's look at... The second half of our passage, the second part, verses 49 through 50, purity in Christ. First, verse 49, so it's really a bridge verse here. Connects both to what we've just read and to what we will read. Says this, for everyone will be salted with fire. This is a strange verse. Obviously, the theme of fire connects with what we just read, and salt will point to what follows but what does it mean to be salted with fire? Well, it, it refers to the Old Testament sacrificial system. Salt in the sacrificial system was given with grain offerings. It, it represented purity and holiness. Uh, Leviticus tells us it was given with all offerings. And then uh, in Ezekiel, we even see that it was, it was given with the, the sin-atoning burnt offering. So what's the point? In, in the biblical context. Well, the sacrificial system is about communion with God, peace with God. The only way unholy man comes into God's holy presence was through a mediating sacrifice. 
Sin must come under judgment in God's presence. All sin will come under judgment, either in the fire of God's wrath in hell or God's fiery wrath on the cross. That's the bridge. Everyone being salted with fire not only refers to the eternal judgment of those who refuse to accept these terms of peace, the eternal judgment of God's wrath in hell, but also the purification of those who are in Christ. Look at verse 50. Again, we'll look at this in two parts parallel to verses 42 and 48. In verse 42 through 48, we saw the nature of sin and the fight of every saint. Here in in verse 50, we'll see the nature of purity and the identity of every saint. Verse 50 says, salt is good, but if, if the salt has lost its saltiness, how will you make it salty again? Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. So salt represents purity here in the biblical context we saw. Thus salt is good. Salt by nature is salty. Have you ever tasted unsalt, unsalty salt? I doubt it. That is then to say, Purity, by nature, is pure. Jesus is making, makes the point with a rhetorical question. If salt loses its saltiness, how will you make it salty again? Answer, you don't. Unsalty salt is not salt. The point Jesus is making is that salt, by nature, must be salty or it is not salt. Purity, then, by nature, must be pure, or it is not purity. And then Jesus says this, an exhortation to his followers. Verse 50, the identity of every saint. Have salt in yourselves, and be at peace with one another. So Jesus Jesus exhorts his followers to have salt. Have purity in yourself. How can impure, sinful humans have salt, have purity in themselves? Jesus seems to be proposing an impossible situation, and it should make his disciples be questioning right now, what is he, what is going on? Well, we just saw that the, the way that God salts his people and purifies his people is through the cross of Jesus Christ. The problem of sin is not essentially a problem with the hand, the foot, the eye. The problem of sin is that by nature we are sinful. It comes from our hearts. Blessed are the pure in heart for they will see God. How do we remedy this? We look at what God offers us, the cross of Christ. We will not purify ourselves as much as we may be tempted to try. Rather, the promise of the gospel from, that we saw in verse 49 is that God will salt us by fire. God has salted us by fire. God will purify us. And Jesus on the cross was the perfectly salted, perfectly pure sacrifice who became our sin. And what fire did he endure? 
He endured the full fire of God's pure and holy light. God is a consuming fire. And the wrath of God, rather than falling on us in our impurity, fell on the perfectly pure Jesus at the cross who took our place and became our sin. It is Jesus' purity, his perfect sacrifice that fully satisfied God's wrath. That's what saves you. That is what makes you pure. That is how you're salted by fire. No other means. Only Jesus. At the cross, Jesus became sin. At the cross, Jesus took the consequence of our death. All your sins, hand, foot, eye, doesn't matter. You say, well, what about that sin? That sin too. Well, there's a certain sin that I I always struggle with. That sin too. Any sin that you have that would perpetuate sin. You've incited rebellion. You've been God's enemy. This is the very reason Jesus went to the cross because of those things. And And this is how he purifies you. What then is the Christian response to such an unbelievable reality. To wallow in our guilt? No. To embrace impurity and sinfulness because Jesus did this? No. The response is to be pure. Live in light of this reality. This is who you are. Therefore, do everything you can in response to this to live it out. Your purity is real. It is not hypothetical. It is a true reality. God looks at the Christian and he sees Christ's righteousness. And just as with our unity, it is a true reality. You're pure in the eyes of Christ. But just as with unity, when we look at our lives, we so often see our impurity. And that temptation, then, is to legalistically try to make ourselves more pure. Or the temptation is to, as we've said, wallow in the guilt or passively embrace sin. Presume upon God's kindness that since he's done this in Christ, there's no need for me to repent. Just just take advantage of God's grace. But the gospel prescribes something different. The gospel recognizes the now and not yet reality of purity, truly pure in Christ now, spiritually, but yes, still in the flesh, battling sinful flesh, and the sinful man breaks out. So the call of the gospel is not to be wallowing guilt, not to be passive towards it. The call of the gospel is to respond to the reality of your purity, what God has done by striving to live a pure and holy life. That's why Jesus exalts, uh, exhorts, have salt within yourself. This is who you are. Purity must be pure. So when you see impurity, you cut it out. You get it out because I'm pure in Christ. Salted with fire also speaks to the ongoing purification God will refine and purify his people through the fires and trials of this life. These are the things that God will use to, to, to purify and refine you. It is a now and not yet reality. But notice again the built-in warning of Jesus' rhetorical question. He said, if we are not doing this, 
if we're not actively fighting sin, if we are not believing in our purity before God in Christ and acting upon that faith to fight sin, the warning is that we run the risk of proving ourselves to not be pure, of proving ourselves impure and unsalted. There is no such thing as unsalty salt. There is no such thing as impure purity. Salt is salty. Purity is pure. Christians are by nature God-given nature, salty, because of what Jesus did. Christians are by God-given nature, pure. Therefore, in faith, we respond to this reality to have salt in ourselves. Notice it's also directly tied to our unity, our purity. Jesus exhorts, right after exhorting, have purity, have salt within yourself, Jesus exhorts, and be at peace with one another. So Jesus is showing how these two go hand in hand, right? Purity fosters unity. Unity will foster purity. Show me a church that fights for unity, and I will show you a church that fights for purity. Christians are a pure and united people. It's a blood-bought reality. Pure only in Christ. Christians are united only in Christ. Christ is at the bottom, the top of it all. St. Patrick's prayer that we heard Read this morning in the song is appropriate. Christ with me, Christ before me, Christ behind me, Christ in me, Christ beneath me, Christ above me, Christ on my right, Christ on my left, Christ when I lie down, Christ when I sit down, Christ in the heart of every man who thinks of me, Christ in the mouth of every man who speaks of me, Christ in the eye that sees me, Christ in the ear that hears me. Christ is the purity and unity of the Christian. Therefore, Christians live in light of this glorious reality by applying these truths. First point of application, then, gospel application here is purify yourself. What do we mean by that? Confess and repent. We noted, we heard read this morning, 1 John 3, 3, we said at the beginning, anyone, uh, everyone who thus hopes in him, and Jesus purifies himself as he is pure, and Just as we've seen in our passage, and just as John makes clear in 1 John, if we say we do not have sin, we deceive ourselves. So the problem is we're impure. So how do we purify ourselves? 1 John 1, 9, 1 John 2. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from unrighteousness. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins. We purify ourselves by pleading the blood of Christ, the very thing that purified us in the first place. We never move past this. I'm reminded of the psalmist in Psalm 116, what shall I render to the Lord for all his benefits to me? What do I give God in return for this? I will lift up the cup of salvation and call on the name of the Lord. I will lift up the cup of salvation and call on the name of the Lord. Give me more. I plead the blood of Christ. God has purified you in Christ. This is who you are. This is what he has done for you. What can you do in return? Nothing but ask for more. Purify yourself by casting yourself on Christ. This leads to the second gospel application. Practice your purity and embrace your present purification. Take steps to be who you are. Take steps to actively cut out temptations and sin in your life. This is not to save yourself. 
No, this is in response to what God has made you to be in Christ, pure. If you are pure, you see the impurities, cut them out. Practice your purity. The sins that the fleshly heart still cling to. Why do you do this? Because God has made you pure and he holds out promises for you. Remind yourself then, third application, of God's promises for the pure. What motivates such continual confession, continual repentance? We could grow weary of it, right? Seeing how much impurity remains in us. What, 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 what motivates bearing fruit in keeping with that repentance? What motivates when God is purifying us through trials to, to hold on to that promise that he is purifying us? What motivates these things? It's God's promise for the pure. Always reminding yourself that you will see God. What awaits you is to enter into the fullness of God's kingdom. And once there, no more sin shall remain. This is the promise. You also remind yourself of the warnings. These warnings are written to Christians. Remind yourself that the warnings say this. This practice of impurity, this practice of sin, will not inherit the kingdom of God. This is a grace to hear these things. It makes us cling ever more to the promises of salvation and the kingdom of God in Christ. And finally, this must take place in community. We practice purity in unity. Jesus says it here himself. Have salt in yourself and have peace with one another. Two go hand in hand. The fight to trust and believe in God's salvation in Christ. By God's grace, there are Christians who are by themselves and God is saving them and keeping them by his grace. But the normative model, the normative prescription that Jesus holds out for us is Life in the local church. Right here, DGCC, God in his providence has put us together in here to fight this fight of purity, to be pure together, holding out the gospel, clinging to it, and to do it in unity, together. Keep one another accountable. Look out for one another. Confess to one another. Seek help from one another. When we are doing this, We are walking in the light of God in the purity of our conduct and in fellowship with each other. Gospel purity happens in gospel unity. This is such a grace, the church, that we find ourselves covenant with each other, commit with one one another to always cling to this gospel and never Distort it, never lose it. What purifies us is the gospel of Christ. Therefore, we respond to that in faith. So DGCC, your purity is a blood-bought reality. The call of the gospel is to believe in Jesus alone for your purity. And the call of the gospel is to live in light of your purity. In holiness and in unity, fellowship with one another. Be who you are. That's the exhortation from Scripture you'll see so often. Here's the gospel. This is who you are. Now be who you are. You are pure in Christ. You're a child of God. And you will see God. And on that day, sin will no longer remain. Perfect purity. Perfect unity. This is the promise for you. Let's pray.